Welcome to the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Jeff Sharon, Eric Lopez with you, and joining us on this, well, semi-special edition, I guess. I mean, there really wasn't much news going on in the course of the week, but we want to get a show, and I oh, wanted to wait, have... Wait, wait. Semi-special, meaning I'm not important? No, I... There's no news. That's not... So you're going to go to me. I... <laughs> Boy, wow. <laughs> so, see, I got called out. Okay, it's... It's don't worry, you know, don't worry, Coach. He's used to having bad intros into these shows. I know, I know. Wow. It's, wow. No, just no, just be, no. Listen, usually I start it with a bad dad joke. So I, so I will. Well, that was a bad joke. Let me, <laughs> <laughs> let me amend myself to this special edition of the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. And joining me is uh, the. Uh, oh, now I get to embarrass you, Todd. The two-time defending American Athletic Conference champion, head coach of the UCF volleyball program and the winningest coach in program history, Todd Dagenet is joining us on the Black and Gold Banner Red Podcast. What's up, Todd? How are you? How you doing, buddy? Both doing good. Guys, how you doing? We are, we, are, we are like you, man. We are hanging in there in this uh, brave new world. Now, I, I wanted to have you on the show because, you know, this is with, – with, with the coronavirus – issue essentially you know canceling all sports in the spring and everyone now starting to get worried about the fall there's just i can't think of anybody else who i'd rather have on to talk about some of the things that that coaches are thinking about that you know that that the fans don't see right i mean it's and and, you know we hear all the time about you know what happened with basketball and you know football with everything but there are there are thousands of student athletes who aren't involved in anything like that and you have always been a great sounding board for that. So I guess I'll start with this. What, when everything got canceled a few weeks back, seems like a few months back already, but when every, when, when the NCAA put the kibosh on everything, what were you thinking about and concerned with at that point? By the time they put the kibosh on everything, you know, I think, think my mind switched from this really important thing that I do volleyball to realizing that volleyball is nothing more than a game and you know my thoughts instantly went to oh my gosh this is real this is spreading fast this is going to hurt people um, is this going to hurt somebody that I know and love? Um, all of a sudden it goes from me coaching a game and coming off an amazing year to this is something that only, you know, has happened a few times in recorded history and here we are living it. And so I think it went to, a. a, a uh, not a fear, but just, you know, what am I witnessing? How are people being impacted? What can I do to help? What can we do to help? And all of a sudden, we were no longer coaches and teachers. And, you know, all of a sudden, we were, you know, trying to figure out how we can bind together as a group and make the world a better place. How did you guys manage to do that? You know, I've seen a couple of things that, you know, you guys, that the team has posted on social media. I love what McKenna posted with the the stay-at-home challenge. I thought that was such a cool video with everyone trying to, 
I, I forget who it was who looked like she she did a somersault off of her bed, you know, trying to trying to keep a toilet paper roll in the air. I think it was Fabi Rebos who did that. But um, how did you guys, you know, at, at you and the coaches and the players, how have you guys been coping with this to this point? I think the best thing you can do is try to maintain the best routine possible. And so when we're talking about the lives of uh, 16 young women who are extremely academic, who live life on the blade of a sword in terms of trying to be excellent in the classroom, on the volleyball floor, in life, you know, and they have a lot of things taken away from them. You don't worry about them so much backing off and becoming less than what they're capable of being. You worry about them being lost. You know, you start to worry about, you know, when an athlete loses their place in the world or a little bit of their identity, you know, how are they going to do with that? And so what we try to do is we try to keep things as structured as possible. Um, That started off right away with a strength conditioning program that was done by Jeremy. And he sent that to them so, you know, they have a body workout program that they can do on their own. That's something that they're used to doing. Um, You know, getting back into the online classes, I think, helped immensely because it gave them a bit of structure. They get up each day. They go through their routine of getting their homework done. Um, You know, the positive thing is, is they're getting rest on their bodies, uh, which, you know, from a fall and from a spring standpoint, you know, we went pretty hard. And so they're getting some rest in their bodies. But I think more than anything else, keeping that structure, keeping that sense of togetherness um, has been really important. And we've done that through video meetings, um, you know, Zoom meetings typically is what most people are doing. But we get together and today we just had one. And today was we had a zoom meeting to kind of go over logistics of what's going on, talk about possible dates, talk about possible pivoting, what we're going to have to do. But it was done. I was wearing a cheese head and <laughs> McKenna was wearing a feather boa and everybody was all dressed up. I mean, somebody was dressed up uh, like a old guy with a top hat and a beard. And it, it just was, you know, we're trying to keep things light in something that's otherwise really dark and heavy. Um, so we're, we're trying to do our best to, to stay together, to try to keep structure, to laugh a little bit, but to be very real about what's happening around us and how it's impacting us. You've coached under some of the greats. and What sort of cues did you take from your mentors from your friends in the coaching business about how to deal with a situation like this? You know, I wish I could give you a great answer on that. I think the only thing that I have to compare it to is 9-11. But 9-11 was so much different. That was a, you know, that was a day. And then the aftershock of the day that lasted, you know, a week or two. Um, But I remember practicing on 9-11 um, this was under Chuck Irby, and mm. I remember practicing on 9-11 because we didn't know how big of a deal it was. And then as the day went on, then we started to realize, hey, this is, this is a big deal. Um, we got together as a staff back then, and we said, you know, they need normalcy. They just need it to be normal. And so we had practice, and we just kind of kept going. So 
we coped with 9-11 by just trying to keep things as normal as possible and dealing with grief or dealing with the loss of relatives or loved ones. You know, we, you know, we did that the best we could. Um, this is something completely different because not only do we have to deal with that adversity, we can't even be together to do it. So your greatest support system isn't there to give you a hug, isn't there to give you a high five isn't there just to make eye to eye contact. Uh, that's been, and that's been a challenging component to all of this is staying together that way. Yeah. That's that, you know, it's obviously not exactly the same, but it's, just, it's something that, you know, Eric and Brian and myself and a lot of us in the media industry have talked about is that, you know, we're used to sports being the crutch that we lean on through hard times because it gives us, the it gives us the distraction that we need right we can take our mind off of you know how crappy things are and you know for for two and a half three hours every night you know watching whatever it is on top but we don't even have that and that's what makes this sort of a a, a brave new world and it really does I, it's really a, a psychological test for everyone involved in this industry about you know what you know it, what is it that's really important you know yeah it's you know every night you come home, you can't wait to see what hockey game is on or what basketball game is on or, and there's nothing on sports center. And so the channels that you normally go to, and that's part of your routine, right? You come home, you turn on the TV, you turn on one of those channels and there's nothing there. I mean, and the, the, the world that we know has ceased to move forward. And so we're dealing with what is, and, you know, what is, is what's left on TV or meetings or preparing for the future, which, you know, I, for one, firmly believe there's still a bright future out there in front of us after we get through this and after we get through the heartache and, um, but preparing for that and portraying and, and, and actually feeling a sense of positivity coming out of this, despite all the negativity that's around it. Um, I think those are really the things that we're trying to focus on all as individuals and as a staff for sure as their leaders. Yeah. I, you know, I'm wondering, you know, there's been so much chatter about football. People have asked football coaches, how long does it take to get a team ready to start the season? How long do you need? You know, they talked about anywhere from four to eight weeks for camp with all the uncertainty going on. As you mentioned, we don't know when you're going to get together with your team next time. How much time do you normally need to get your team ready to start the season? And it's unique because you got usually you're you're starting before even football season starts. Soccer usually starts earlier, so there's a lot of uncertainty right. here. Normally, this time of year, you're probably already wrapping up spring and you're getting looking ahead to the fall. Right now, there's a lot of questions you probably have that you don't know, you won't get an answer for for a while. Yeah, we were just talking about that today. You know, usually soccer starts that first week of April and then they're usually playing a game about a week before we are um, football is already starting their training about the same time as soccer um, even though they don't have their game to the end of the month or the beginning of September we usually come in about the 10th of August and our first match is usually the 24th 25th so we usually get about two weeks of preparation but that two weeks always follows almost six weeks of strength and conditioning during summer B. And 
that is really where we are physically getting ready for the four months that are ahead of us. Um, and, and that's the concern is, you know, how much of that are we going to miss? It's not the two weeks of preseason training that put us in position to do well. It's the six weeks before the two weeks of spring training or of fall training that put us. So I'm hoping that when it comes back, there's almost time for an NFL style mini camp or a baseball style spring training kind of thing where maybe we're not going a full 20 hours a week. Hopefully we're doing something, you know, only eight to 10 hours a week, but something just to get them in what I call volleyball shape. I think volleyball shape is different from going out and running a lot or lifting a lot. It's, it's all the jumping and all the landing and it's the body accommodating and having to recover um, to that physical trauma that you have to go through when you jump and you land and you roll and you do all that kind of stuff. Uh, that takes time and kind of to pivot back to your question, how long does it take? You know, I was talking to an administrator today and he said, in your ideal world, how much time do you have before you play your first match? And I said, boy, we lost all of spring. If we were to lose summer, if that was to happen, six weeks, we we need six weeks, four weeks of good lifting just to be strong because you're going to have to remember we've been fairly idle and sedentary for six months at that point. So I, four weeks of good lifting, two weeks of good skill work just to put us in position to, you know, and uh, to put us into position to be able to grow into ourselves. I think anything beyond that, you start to risk injury if you push it too fast. Uh, we're a violent sport. Now we're not a violent collision sport like football, but it's a violent sport in terms of speed and power and landing and G forces and things like that, that if your body is not ready to handle those kinds of forces, you put yourself in position to be injured. It, it you know, it's, it's one thing for, in, you know, the returners on the roster it's another thing when you have, you know, four freshmen who are coming in, too, who are, um, uh, who, who are, you know, they haven't gotten used to what the grind is like on the college level. So, uh, you know, you have three, you have four who are coming in, uh, including one from Oviedo, um, somebody who's local, one other player from Florida and Eustis, and one from California, one from Georgia. How do you, how do you think you're going to approach getting your newcomers and not to mention of course that your uh transfer of course uh tally marmon who came who came in as a grad transfer from rutgers how do you what do you think is going to be your plan for getting new for getting the newcomers adjusted to the system and prepared once you guys get the go-ahead you know i think the plan is going to be not to have a plan i think the plan is going to be knowing that um Polly um, coming in from Rutgers, she's already going to have a familiarity of what it's like in preseason. So she's going to be able to be smart. We just have to track her jumps, watch her output, make sure it's not too much with the incoming freshmen. That's a whole different thing. They may not get to practice 20 hours a week. 
they only may take 85 jumps in a practice and then that's it. They're done. It's going to really depend on what they come in with. And each of our players wear a little sensor on them. And that sensor tells us how many jumps they took, what their power output was, how many G forces they're creating by jumping and landing. And it puts it into an algorithm and it gives our athletic trainers on an iPad, it gives them, kind of an idea of when they're starting to get into that red zone and that red zone is a dangerous area where they start to get susceptible to an injury and so we're going to have to watch that a lot closer and it might mean a lot shorter practices for some people um, than others just because we can't we have to put health over everything else and so they're going to be able to do what they're going to be able to do but when the computer says it's time for them to stop it's time for them to stop that's it they're done it's like a pitch count right it's very similar it's very similar you know during the year we'll uh we do a jump count on most players um at the beginning of the week they're allowed maybe between 130 and 150 jumps in practice Um, as the week goes on that tapers down to 50 to 75 injured players are sometimes on a 30 to 40 jump count um, so they can play on Friday and Sunday. So it's it's going to really be an individual, um, tailored program for each and every player, and it's going to take our strength coach, our biomechanics crew, our athletic training staff, and the coaching staff to really work together and to be on the same page to make sure we're not putting somebody in harm's way. Uh, how – how flexible, and I'm not just about you, I'm talking about the entire sport here of college volleyball, are you to the possibility that your season may be delayed, uh, maybe either because of the virus or maybe because you're getting a late start and you got to get you know, make sure your student-athletes are healthy? How flexible, adaptive can the sport of volleyball be as far as, hey, we may not start till later in the fall, or what if we have to maybe play in the spring like people have brought up with football? Can volleyball be as flexible uh, to do that, or is that going to be could be a problem? You know, what choice do we have at this point? Yeah. You know, we're all at the mercy of something that's completely out of our control, completely unpredictable. Um, we're all in a reactionary phase to what's happening, and we're all trying to answer questions whose answers are changing by the day or by the week. Um, every staff meeting we've had, the information's changed a little bit because of what's going on in the world is changing a little bit. So how flexible are we? I, I don't have an answer to that. I don't know because we could, I think right now the spectrum is we could do anything from starting with a, with a pre-camp to preseason. So start a little bit early that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is, yeah, this thing continues on and we have to postpone the season in the spring, I guess would be an option. Um, you know, the thing about being in the spring is there's a lot of schools whose gymnasiums are shared by volleyball and basketball. You talk about putting men's basketball, women's basketball and volleyball all at the same time. It, it, It doesn't work out real well. We know that because November is often really difficult for a lot of volleyball teams because men's, women's basketball are going on, women's volleyball is going on, the event staff is going crazy. 
trying to put on all these games and trying to find practice time and coaches are having to practice at nine in the morning. It's really crazy. We're lucky. We have a beautiful facility at UCF and it allows us to practice whenever we want to practice. So we're not impacted at all by being in a same season as a men's and women's basketball. Um, now the event staff, <laughs> the administration, yeah. um, UCF personnel, that's, that's going to be a tough deal for them. But, you know, we'll do whatever we have to do. Uh, we, will, we will do what we have to do. Um, we'll acquiesce where we have to acquiesce. We'll, we'll just do whatever it takes to get through this year because I think we're dealing something. You've heard the word unprecedented mentioned five billion times, and that's exactly what it is. It's unprecedented. So an unprecedented time requires unprecedented decisions. And so whatever it takes to pull this off, to not um, compromise anybody and and make them work 90 hours a week, we'll do what we have to do. But right now, the the spectrum of what could be is so big, I can't even possibly guess at what's going to happen. Tell me about the communication that you've received from. Well, I mean, you're you're getting messages and relaying messages from a whole bunch of places from the from the administration at UCF, from the the conference, I'm sure, as well as the NCAA itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you know by now there's probably been a hierarchy of you know what kinds of information you get from which sources on you know here's here's the questions that we're throwing at you guys, the coaches about what to do. And you kind of mentioned that a little bit earlier about, you know, w- about some of the administration asking about how much time would you realistically need to prepare. So I guess we'll start with closest to home, um, UCF's administration, Danny White, and all your other fellow coaches. How, how you know, how much have they been communicating with you and bouncing things back and forth with you on, on the status of the sport and how things are going to move going forward? Well, I can tell you this. I've been under more athletic directors than I can count, sport administrators, and I have never felt as informed or as a part of the decision-making process or more included than I have right now. Um, I'm sure you could talk to all the coaches, and we're probably all on the same page, but Danny... As an athletic director and Brad Strickland as our sports supervisor, I've never had it so good. And the information, the way that information is delivered, the timeliness in which it's delivered, coaches get an update at 4 o'clock every single day. So we are getting an email um, with everything that's going on, um, any changes um, that have happened in the last 24 hours, we're getting that update at four o'clock every day. And then we're having weekly meetings um, over uh, teams where all the, uh, sometimes it's the entire department. A lot of times it's executive staff and just head coaches. So it's a smaller meeting, but I feel like when something happens, I know about it within 24 hours of it happening you know, from when the, from when the ADs know about it, I I feel like they're keeping us in the loop so we can pivot wherever we need to pivot. And then, so the, the structure that we got into is those meetings usually take place Monday or Tuesday. Um, then what we do is we schedule our meetings with our athletes on Wednesday and Thursday. So 
we had an executive staff and head coaches meeting this week on Tuesday. And then we turn around, we have a meeting with the athletes on Wednesday to give them whatever information they need, answer the questions that they have. And that's been going on now for several weeks. So between the daily updates, the weekly staff meetings, and then we have uh, periodic what we call town hall meetings, which includes the whole athletic department. I'm telling you guys, I've never felt like I've been so informed. Um, even though you feel like you're in a cave, you know what's going on in the world around you. And that, I think that's just a tribute to the communication, um, the efficiency at which that communication has taken place. I mean, there, there's some brain power behind the message that's being delivered. That message is very consistent. There is no contradicting of information. It's crystal clear. This is what's going on. This is how we're dealing with it. You have to decide what you want to do here and there. It's It's been, um, it's really been uh, neat to be a part of, especially having been through many athletic departments, many athletic directors. How about the conference? Have you gotten, you know, uh, communication from the league your your fellow coaches, your fellow volleyball coaches around the conference about um, about things that they're talking about, and what sort of things do you get from the conferencing of the coaches? Well, uh, you know, I tell you, I love my peers, but they're not exactly what I would call the um, the pinnacle of true statements. So I don't try. I don't get. I don't get my news. From the fellow coaches in the conference. Wait, wait, wait! You tell me um, that you're telling me there's gamesmanship among volleyball coaches in the American Athletic Conference. I, I, I I'm, <laughs> there's gamesmanship I going on in this establishment. Really? <laughs> there's gamesmanship going on all the time. Now that, and it's I don't know if it's so much gamesmanship as it is, you know, everybody has their own spin on what they're being told. So I'm hearing something secondhand from somebody. Now, I think part of that hierarchy of information that's being dispersed, the conference is going right to the athletic director, and then the athletic director is putting it together, packaging it, and giving it to the coaches. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're not really in conversations with the conference. The coaches are talking to each other, but we also know that we are taking – what we're getting from our athletic directors. We're not comparing notes because it seems like the athletic directors are doing a great job of being on the same page and then disseminating the same information to the head coaches. So we all feel like we're getting the same amount of information. I would imagine it's probably the same thing too at the NCAA and also the volleyball coaches association too, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. Um, you know, the uh, ABCA puts something out once a week, um, but there's really only so much they can do right now. Right. I mean, as as a coaching staff, we're we're paying attention to what our athletic directors are telling us. Um, we're asking them the questions because they're the they're the center point of all the information that's coming in from all different places. They're straining through the information that needs to uh, be disseminated, and um, then we're just taking that information and we're running with it. Cool. All right. Well, I mean, it's good sure. to know that you guys have all that at your disposal. Go ahead, Eric. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Let me ask you. I mean, I didn't affect you directly, but you're a college, you're a college sports fan, so you follow every sport. I've seen you at all the sporting events. Uh, what was your reaction to the NCAA Council giving the spring athletes the extra year of eligibility and having the institutions kind of figure it out? I know it didn't affect you, but – 
you know, from as someone who's been in college athletics, what was your thoughts on how that was handled by the NCAA council and the votes and all that going down? You know, I, I am removed from that because it doesn't affect us directly. Um, you know, I really, I talk to Cindy softball. I talk to Greg at baseball, you know, I try to get their thoughts on what they think about it. Um, and I kind of form my opinion based on what's good for them because it really doesn't affect me as much. So, um, you know, I think in a lot of ways it's a good thing for the student athletes, um, but it also creates a lot of difficulty in some areas too. So I think each institution has a challenge in front of them in how they're going to manage that. But um, I think in some ways it's, it's a good thing because you – you know, uh, you think about the seniors on the baseball and the softball team and the track team, and it sure would be nice for them to go out with an opportunity to play their championship season. Um, even basketball, um, you know, both basketball teams. Um, I, I personally, I felt like our baseball team might have been the best baseball team since I've been here 12 years. You're not the only I one. No, <laughs> our, soft, our softball team has been the best softball team that we've had since I've been here. Um, I thought they softball really had a shot at going on to the World Series, and you know, who knows after that? Once you get to the World Series, anything can happen. But I thought baseball was good. I thought they had the arms to get to where they needed to go. Plus, I thought they had the offense at the right time, and they had the speed, and they had you know, I thought they were low air, and so it's uh, it was disappointing to see their seasons cut short. Um, but you know whatever is going to happen is going to happen. That's way above my pay grade. <laughs> and as, as a baseball fan, I'm bummed because I would take my study breaks or film breaks in the office and I would walk down and I'd go over to the Berg and I would watch, you know, six or seven innings of a ball game. And I loved going out to softball. Um, I love, I love watching softball and, so to you know to have that taken away that study break taken away that it was kind of a bummer and i can only imagine how difficult it was on the student athletes and how difficult it was on the coaches we got to play for a championship this year they didn't and i I really feel for them not being able to do that well and how much i mean and that's unique because greg was there when you won the volleyball championship among the other coaches uh how much of that when you interacted with them was just being a friend there and being there? Cause you know, there's probably a, you know, a lot of different emotions from a coach to have something take away. It's obviously understood why it was and it was all that, but there's still a lot of mixed feelings that maybe you could re- uh, can relate as a fellow coach and, you know, being there for them in a situation, unique situation like this, who they've been supporting you all the time. I mean, Greg's been to a lot of your volleyball matches. Yeah, no, you, you look at across the spectrum and how well, our coaches support each other. Um, everybody. It's just almost an unwritten rule that we support each other whenever we have the opportunity to do so. Even if it's just peeking in, even if it's just stopping by for 10 or 15 minutes, it's just showing up and trying to support. And that's something that's so unique about UCF. I'd never had that at USC. I never had that at Michigan state. Um, we are all in the same boat together. And I think that's one of the positives of being a small athletic department 
um, is that we genuinely are friends. We genuinely care about each other. We care about each other's teams. We look out for each other. We have each other's backs and we support each other. And when, you know, I know that, uh, you know, coach Abe would have loved a shot at a conference tournament and a shot at an NCAA tournament. And no, she didn't get that. That hurts. And I know that Greg and Cindy were on the verge of possibly having some of the best seasons in school history and they didn't get a chance to follow that up. That hurts. Um, so yeah, it does. You know, it, it does weigh on me, um, that, that they didn't get that opportunity. I think the other thing too is like I'm, I'm sure you're probably going to be watching, you know, how the NC, how they handle this situation with the NCAA coming up. Because what if, God forbid, you know, the same situation befalls you in the fall, right? And then you have to, you know, they're sort of writing the playbook for, hey, if there's a squeeze on rosters because the because the fall got delayed or whatnot, here's how we're going to handle it, right? Right. Yeah, you know, we're getting into that unknown and, and, and just who who really knows what's going to happen. Um, there's just so many different things that could possibly play out. Uh, I just hope that um, I just hope that it doesn't go there. I really yeah. do. I, I hope, you know, if anything, if there needs to be a delay, let there be a delay. But I hope this thing, you know, I hope this thing starts to mitigate I hope people stop dying. I hope that everything starts to return back to normal again. Um, I, I grieve for the people that, that were affected by it. And as a matter of fact, there's been a couple of our recruits um, who's, had, who's had family members test positive, um, who are elderly, who right now are worried about them. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's become a very real thing for us. Um, fortunately all of our players and their immediate families, um, you know, knock on wood, we've all been okay so far. Um, but it's, it's in people that we know and our players have friends that know people. And, you know, I just, the first thought really is let's find a way to mitigate this and get through this and keep people healthy and safe. And, and then we'll figure out games you know, all this other stuff. Yes, it's our livelihood, but, you know, when you boil down to life and death, we're, we're all playing games. That's what we're doing. We're just, yeah. We do games. This is real life. We'll be right back with more from Todd Dagenet after this. Now let's get back to our conversation with UCF Volleyball head coach Todd Dagenet. I thought this WrestleMania was the best WrestleMania ever. I'm watching you guys tweet back and forth and I'm not saying a word because none of you guys even know that I'm watching but I'm telling you that Undertaker AJ Styles thing might have been the greatest thing I've ever seen in wrestling it was pretty amazing it's definitely the highlight of this year's Wrestlemania and probably the last few even you know it's a weird mania because there's no fans in attendance but uh, boy, that that was pretty creative stuff. I haven't we haven't had a chance to talk to Coach Lovelady. He's the wrestle, you know, as you know, he's the WWE expert. So I'm curious what he thought. But I agree with you. I actually yeah, thought it was he's pretty the, good. he's the out and open one. I'm kind of the closeted one. Nobody really knows it. Oh, not uh, anymore. I was. I have <laughs> known really, this. We would have gotten I was you all. Really looking forward to it. <laughs> See, okay, so here's the yeah, thing. I, 
Love, la- love ladies okay. in season during WrestleMania. So it's like as much as we want to have them on to break things down, we can't do it. So, all right. That, all right. Tell Murph this, Eric. We're going to have Todd on next next year to talk about wrestlemania <laughs> we and- can have both i mean we've made time i mean we, like you know me and murph talked about we had we interviewed coach lovelady about wrestling the day of the game and they won that game so we <laughs> right. I look at it as good car good luck uh there they did have you, well, you know what i was excited they did this year you know looking back over the history of wrestlemania yeah. i think the exciting thing that they did was they put over the younger talent they really passed the torch this year once and for all, um, they gave the Undertaker the sell, the, 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 the send off that somebody like that deserves for 30 years in the business. And that I've never seen anything like that before. It was like watching, um, it was like watching a diehard movie or something, you know, those two put on the most amazing cinematic performance along with the production crew imagine the production that went into it i i read that it was it was the the set was built over five days it took eight hours to shoot that match yep and that's correct full sale i I think it was over at full sale yeah i I thought it was over at the performance center off of forsyth isn't that where it was though it might have been we it's kind of we heard they used some stuff from full sale to kind of probably right yeah so was it, it was actually an indoor set, because or was it an outdoor? No, set? no, no. It was outside, but they used some stuff. I guess they grabbed from Full Sail. Like for example, there's a NXT Takeover match. They're doing it from Full Sail in a cinematic right. match going on as we speak, actually. So okay. they it, it's been a back and forth between the Performance Center and Full Sail, from what I've been uh, I've heard. Right. Well, I here's what I respected about it. It certainly lacked the pop and the excitement and the pomp and circumstance of having a crowd there. Um, you know, when, when Goldberg was on his back for a count of three, that place would have popped. Um, but it was like, Oh, and it's over. <laughs> um, but again, putting over younger talent. Um, I have come to respect the female division more so than ever they are talented athletes they are tough women i really respect what they're doing i'll tell you guys a quick story uh, 19 i'm gonna say 1996 or so um i'm recruiting in atlanta georgia and i'm i, I remember where i was i was on a court it's kind of in the middle of the of the convention center recruiting um, and I'm looking at my list, and there's this outside hitter, about five ten, pretty good, um, you know, g- good athlete, decent ball control. Wasn't sure she could play at the Big Ten level, uh, but then I kind of look over. I'm like, this something caught my attention. It was this peroxide white hair. Well, it was Ric Flair, <laughs> and I'm like, what in the world is Ric Flair doing here? And I'm looking at my roster, Flair, Flair, Flair. No, there's no Flair. Oh, wait, there's a Fleer, Ashley Fleer. Okay, and that's the kid that I'm watching. Dynamic athlete, quick, diving everywhere, just hustle. And, you know, I come back later to watch the next match, and here's Ric Flair shaking balls, being hit, you know, just being a dad like everybody else, interacting with all the other dads. And 
so yeah, I, I ended up recruiting Ashley Fleer, who is now Charlotte in the WWE. God, you never um, told me that but, story. Wow. <laughs> uh, yes. So, but out on the court, on the volleyball court, she was considered short and small. 5'10 is not really that big for an outside hitter. Uh, but she was out there doing it. Uh, she's on a smaller club team out of North Carolina. Um, but now you look at her, and of course, that was probably when she was uh, 16. I, and I think now it's been 15 years. She's got to be 31 or 32 now. Um, but yeah, I, I, I knew Charlotte way back when she was 16, and she was one hell of an athlete jumping and hitting volleyballs. But that was her primary sport. She was good, and I'll tell you, of all of the professional athletes' daughters that I've ever seen uh, at convention centers and tournaments, Rick Flair was one of the most active dads that I have ever seen in terms of being at every tournament. As a matter of fact, he uh, they did a pay-per-view and I want to say that pay-per-view might have been in Los Angeles, but he was in Baltimore the next morning to watch his daughter play. Golly. And he was scraped up. Um, you know, I, I know what you, you know, the people think how fake it is. Well, it's, it's a real fake um, because those ropes are real and that canvas is real and that those, you know, the chairs are real. The bumps and, and bruises are real. <laughs> the bumps and bruises are real. I mean, he had knots on his head and a couple times I saw him where he had super glued his forehead back together. Um, you knew that was a brutal match. Um, but he was always there and I always had a respect for that. Um, Warren Moon was another dad who was like that but there's a lot of dads that weren't there um, but I remember uh, Rick I remember Warren Moon being um, and uh, oh gosh I'm trying to think of the, the pitcher Atlanta Braves not uh, you're talking about Maddox, Glavin or Smoltz? Now, Smoltz, John Smoltz yeah. his daughter played volleyball actually played us she played for Liberty, um, and he was at the match at the venue. Uh, you look up, you recognize him right away because he's on TV. I think time. I do remember that being. Yeah, yeah I think so that. too. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, but yeah, to see these professional athletes just in their family environment, nobody bothers them. They're part of the dad group that shags balls and runs off and gets dipping dots and you know does all that stuff. Um, but it was really cool to see somebody like a Ric Flair just going out and being a dad. It, I mean, it was, uh, I got a kick out of that. So I, real quick, I looked at Ashley Flair, better known publicly as Charlotte Flair, attended Appalachian State for two seasons, 05 and 06, she and then did. transferred to NC State and uh, played there and finished with her, uh, and finished with her degree in public relations and became a certified personal trainer and then went into wrestling. So, so yes, yeah, she's yeah, a North Carolina was, girl. That was, I remember talking to her club coach, you know, and said, is she going to follow in the family footsteps? Because at that point, um, two of Rick's sons were already in the business yep. and she was the youngest and her volleyball coach says, you know, she really is not interested in it. She, she really would like to play volleyball and then go on in something in personal training or health and fitness or something like that. 
but I think she probably caught the bug at some point and uh, realized that she could have a pretty good career, uh, especially with her last name. But I give her credit because what you see in the ring, working on her character and doing all the, all of the, the work and the cerebral side of it and the learning of the performance is exactly the same way she played volleyball. Cool. And that's God, what a cool story. <laughs> that is so yeah, awesome. No, it, I mean, that's just great. Have you ever been to a WrestleMania in person? Cause you know, me, Greg got to go to his first WrestleMania when uh, it was here in Orlando in 2017. Uh, he went you know, after a baseball I, game. I, 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 was never able, I was never able to go. Um, I would have loved to go, you know, have went, but uh, yeah, I wasn't able to score tickets like, you know, somebody as high class as Greg is. His <laughs> connections, you know. Now, what Greg needs to do is he needs to look down on us peons and, you know, oh my throw God. a ticket our way, and that would be nice. But Greg, <laughs> uh, if you're listening to this, next time when you get your your peeps to help you out, you got to think of your friends. He has to remember I've thrown out 13 first pitches at his game, and he's 13-0 and 0 when I throw out the first pitch. So that's worth a WrestleMania ticket. In his defense, I'll defend him because I know the story. He didn't get tickets literally until the day of, and it was through uh, Mark Daniels' friend who was in, connected to the wrestling industry. So it was, it was literally last second. That he that's got all well me. and good. He has my cell phone number. He knows how to get old. No. Oh my God! Are we are we really starting? All the time. There's no reason why he can't get me at the eleventh hour and say, "Hey, I scored an extra WrestleMania ticket. Why don't you come with me and we'll go together?" Eric, look what we've done. We've started an angle between Todd Dagenet and Greg Lovelady. I tell you what, I there there will be no cage match between Greg Lovelady and I because. People look at him down in the diamond and think he's a small guy. He's I not. I think anybody that goes up to him in person realizes, you know, he's six one, maybe six two. But you shake his hand and you feel like your hand hurts. You pat him on the back and you realize how thick he is. I don't think people realize how in shape that guy is. He puts us all to shame. There's, it, I, I always thought the, the last person on a uh, on a baseball team that you want to mess with is the catcher because Absolutely. they're the enforcers. There's a reason why they're the ones who jump out in front of the hitters when they're thinking about charging them out and say, uh-uh, don't do this. <laughs> well, you just look through history. Johnny Bench, Mike yeah. Sosha. I mean, all, all, the, you know, all the tough guys. Joe Maurer, I mean, before he had to go out in the field, all those tough guys were catchers. Yeah. And absolutely, I mean, um, so, nope, sorry, I, I'm going to decline the last man standing match with <laughs> Greg Lovelady if it was ever presented to me. It's probably wise. It's probably wise. I mean, right. Greg's, Greg, Greg has got a lot of, he knows the industry pretty well. He's got friends in, in the industry, so he could probably... Own, he was so he was funny. dishing some inside stuff to us that one time. Remember that? Really? Yeah, like we had I to think... like we had to edit that thing down. He, 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 you know, Eric, you were telling me like you're gonna have to like you know do some editing here because oh yeah, we like we did an air, yeah we did a special. We aired like how his whole wrestling being a wrestling fan. But yeah, there was a lot of stuff. He's 
he's got a lot of connections there as far as the uh, stuff down. Yeah, there's stuff he's uh, he's very into it. It's very fascinating. I might I might have to hang on his coattail sometime because <laughs> um, I would I'd love uh, as much as I enjoy the theatrical and performance side of it. I would love to see that. Um, NXT was practicing in the venue and they were having a show that night in the venue and so that's right outside my door so I just kept popping my head out the door and watching those wrestlers rehearse over and over and over the timing um, because you know in something like that if the timing's not right somebody gets hurt bad yep. and so some of the spots they were practicing over and over and I remember Triple H was down there working with two younger guys on one specific thing. They worked on it for an hour and a half and it's a five second spot in the show, but they worked on an hour and a half because if they did it wrong, somebody was going to get hurt. And the amount of work they put in, and I know Jeff, you work over at full sale. I'm sure if you ever were able to peek your head in the performance center, that's what you would see. You would see people that are just working on things over and over and over and over again. And I have a lot of respect for that in any sport. I think uh, NASCAR has been one of the sports that's like that. What people don't realize is, well, the cars are going around the track. The guys in the pit crew don't just sit there. They're sitting there watching film, watching the pit stop. Then they go from the film to the pit stop, and they have like a trailer with a fake wheel on it, and they're practicing putting the wheel on, taking it off. They're practicing feeling it up and not, you know they're sitting there practicing pit stops constantly and anybody that puts that much work into precision a volleyball coach really appreciates because that's what we have to do as well so to watch people have to work on something relentlessly just to get it right i have full respect for that yeah i mean like these people are experts at their at their job you know i mean they are the best in the world it's kind of like it's kind of like anything that you see where you know, like the players that you coach at volleyball, right? I mean, any NFL player, I know you're a big Green Bay Packer fan. Like, you know, the guy who, like the number six wide receiver for the Green Bay Packers, right, is mm-hmm. better than anyone else. He's better at being a wide receiver than 99.9999999% of anyone else is at doing anything. That's why they're there at sure. the top. You know, I mean, that's... And I think... I feel bad because I think it's fans a lot of time lose sight of that. You know what they lose sight of? I'll, I would contend that there's receivers in the XFL that are a half a step away from being in the NFL. It's just a numbers game. There's 300 receivers, but there's only 100 spots in the NFL. Oh, you're right. Yeah. They're an NFL receiver, but they just don't have a spot for them on the roster. And so we're watching some of these guys flying a 4.2, able to run routes on a dime, but there's just no spot for them. And they're in the XFL. Yeah. I mean, I I thought the same thing with the XFL, with the Alliance. Like, that's why Eric always gets mad at me because I – you know, I'm I'm a supporter of these kinds of leagues because, you know, I think that, you know, there are there's space for development. And I think that you've seen other professional sports kind of take this on, including the WWE with, you know, NXT taking a developmental stance and the Performance Center and all that. They've really gone, done a good job of expanding that farm system. And I think that football needs that because 
uh, you know, like you said, first of all, there's a lot of quality guys out there. And, you know, for fans who complain about, you know, well, the quality of play, well, one of the ways you can boost the quality of play is with a developmental league like they had in NFL Europe for over a decade, and then that went away. But there were a lot of good players that came out of there and beat the numbers game. And you're right, it is a numbers game. We see guys from UCF that happens to, you know, all the time who are good enough to be players and, and make a, and make a decent living for a while. And for whatever reason, just get lost in the shuffle, right? Well, you know who has it right is the NBA. You know, they have the developmental league. And can Taco make a roster right now? Well, maybe. Can Aubrey make a roster right now? Maybe. Can uh, BJ make a roster right now? Maybe. In four years, when they're 25, 26, 27, and they're at their peak of their athletic ability, yeah, absolutely they can. You know, but that's... They have to have that place to grow. I mean, the difference between the college game and the pro game is so huge. It takes years to get ready for that. Now, there's some guys that are able to make that transition just based on athleticism alone. God bless them. But everybody else has to work their butt off just to gain those extra tenths of a second or those extra you know, miles per hour on their arm or whatever it is. And, and there has to be those developmental leagues for it. And um yeah, I think I think that's really important and football doesn't have that and imagine how good the product would be at the upper level at the apex if there were all if there were thousands vying for those 45 spots on a team. You know, I truly and then when if they don't get one of those spots, they're still playing, they're still competing, they're still, you know, staying sharp and just getting better. And I think that's that's why leagues like that are important. You hear that, Lopez? Hey, I'm just happy Todd put you in your place about wrestling. That's I, all. I, I, that's, uh, at that point, I'm ecstatic about that. That's all. I mean, just been the anti-wrestling guy for a while. I'm just happy. I, now, I've no listen. This. I've become wrestling curious over the last couple of years, and I have to, I have to put give you guys credit on that. Um, you know, because. I, the last time I saw pro wrestling was like the peak of Hulkamania. Like, that's how long ago that was, okay? So, you know, I mean, I know my way around. Like, I kind of know who the big stars are. But, like, you know, to know it as in-depth as you guys are, no. Now, I'd be interested to see it a little bit more, and I'd love to. I still haven't been to an NXT match at Full Sail, and I regret that. Because, I mean, I work, I, I work there regularly. But believe it or not, even for, even for people who are on staff, it's really hard to get into. So sure, I, uh, yeah, it, get, yeah, they weren't. When I walked across out to my car, I had a bunch of people looking at me, telling me to hurry up. You know, they didn't even want me in the venue while they were doing their thing. Right? They didn't want you in your building. <laughs> no, no, that's right. And well, you know, I, I just, I, I just, I love what they're doing. I love the direction that they're taking it, um, because. Those days that you and I grew up on, Jeff, I mean, those guys are in their 50s and 60s now, and they have to go. It's time for them to go. And Stone Cold is gone, and The Rock has gone to the movies, and Cena's going to the movies, and somebody has to step in and take the torch of the company, and I think you're starting to see that now with some of this younger talent. And I mean, what do you do when you're told your biggest event of the year, you're used to having somewhere between 70 and 100,000 people attend it, you can't have anybody there. Now what are you going to do? What do you do creatively on that? When you depend on audience participation, you depend on the pop of the crowd, and you've got nothing. And I thought, 
You know, I thought they did a pretty darn good job, especially with the two really unique cinematic matches. I, I, watching the um, watching the uh, Bray Wyatt um, John oh, Cena Firehouse uh, yeah, Funhouse Cena, yeah the Fire Firefly House. You know, I, I just remember watching it going, "Wow, I've never seen anything like this before." I, I don't know what the no hell one I'm has. watching. I don't Nobody, know if yeah, I, if I like this. I don't know if I don't like this. I just it's just really different, you know. And then after you think about it for about an hour, you're going, "That was really creative," you know, for them to pull that off and that. And then you start thinking about it. It's like watching a horror flick and going back and replaying it in your head and going, "Oh, that's what that meant." Oh, that's what that meant, you know. And I I, I really thought that's what it was. That's they took two matches and did something really special with them that nobody expected them to do because you know they've been they've been docked for their lack of creativity they've been docked for their lack of pushing younger talent and they push younger talent in the biggest event of the year and they were as creative as, as they've ever been i guess that's a microcosm for everything that's been going on right like it's forced us to think real hard about like how to do some things differently and they and they sure. they made the grade Absolutely. You know, I think uh, for us, you know, we have to, okay, what are we going to do to train? What are we going to do to get touches on the ball? What are we going to do to stay together? Um, we better come up with things because there is no playbook for pandemic and something like that. Sure. They could have canceled it, I guess, but you know, they took a risk and decided to try to keep the momentum going. And, you know, was it always great? No, but nothing is always great. I hear you. Uh, they just, found a way to make something work and I, I i respect when somebody tries something different and is willing to think outside the box to make it work because that's something that we feel like we have to do every day yeah all right last thing before we let you go i know you i know you probably want to get rolling here but uh packers off season uh draft is coming up what do you think well i really hope that we get some people uh for aaron to throw to um I think Adams is, uh, you know, I, he's going to get quadruple covered pretty soon. Um, Aaron's not getting I, any I really, younger. And well, Aaron's Aaron's got a you know another two, maybe three shots at this, and um, they need to get some young, athletic. Uh, well, they need to get two different kinds. They need to get a Julian Edelman type possession receiver. Um, somebody that can sit in the slot and sit down in a zone defense and just catch 12 yard passes. And then they need a burner. They need a deep threat. They need, uh, you know, somebody that can just fly a Jordy Nelson. Somebody can fly down the field and pick up a ball. When I saw Thalen was available from Minnesota, I was really hoping they'd go out and they'd get Thalen. Um, I don't, think that's going to happen but uh they they need they need that big guy that six four guy that can fly down the field a randy moss type fly down the field go up and catch a ball on a jump ball and then they need that possession receiver that can sneak through his own defense sit down find the soft spot and just catch a ball so i hope they get that in the first and second round um i think defensively i think they're in a pretty good spot i think Offensive line, it seems like they've been banged up, so they better get some depth there. You can get that in the in the fourth and fifth rounds, but um, they really need wide receivers. 
You had to be happy with Matt LaFleur, though, right? You know, you never know what to expect with somebody with no experience. I mean, how do you hand over the keys to a Mercedes-Benz to a 16-year-old? <laughs> and that's basically what happened, is they said, all right, Matt, here you go. You get the keys to the car. And I'm thinking, oh, there's no way that's going to work with that team. I mean, the entire offensive line is older than he is. <laughs> you know, But... He is part of this new generation of coaching that understands that you get a lot more when you work with people than try to work against them. And I think he's found a way to motivate guys through relationships instead of through fear. And that's going to be the next generation of coaching at all levels. You've seen it um, in the collegiate level. And I think with Dabo Sweeney, uh, with Pete Carroll, but I think you're starting to see it on the pro level. I think Pete took it to Seattle when he went there. I think you're starting to see it at some places where they're trying to lighten things up, keep things fun, keep things exciting and fresh. And I think that's what, that's what Lafleur does. He comes in, he brings a whole new attitude. I think as Aaron Rodgers goes, so do the Packers and, and Aaron seems pretty happy with what's going on. And, you know, maybe it revitalizes him for a few more years. Well, it's interesting you say that because I feel like, you know, we've seen that. It's been true throughout all sports. You're right. Co- college and um, and and pro, you know, the the easy thing is for sports talk radio hosts to go on and on about, oh, oh these millennials, you know, you got to be coddled. And I'm like, well, no, 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 wait a second. It's just no. we're, I, I don't I don't think that's true at all. I think that I think that. You know that younger people these days who grew up in uh, who grew up in technological environments um, are able, you know, are, are have a much more finely tuned BS detector than than people did in the past. I think. What do you think? I I think that's you've almost nailed it on the head. Um, you know, I've done a lot of studies on the generation Y, or you know, sometimes we call it the I Y. You know, little I, big Y, because um, they always ask why. But <laughs> the Y generation, and I don't think people give them the credit that they deserve. Well, they have short attention spans. That's because they're bored, and you have to find new ways to capture their attention. Well, they really don't care, and they're slackers. That's not true. They want to achieve as much as anybody. They want to. They want to be achievers. They want to try to seek perfection, and they're looking for somebody to help mentor them into doing that not scare them into do it or belittle them into doing it and i think the teacher and the coach that figures out that it's not a bad generation it's just a different generation they learn differently they communicate differently and the more you learn how to communicate on their level not down to their level on their level because they communicate at a very high level and they're very sophisticated, and they can smell BS from a mile away. And if they think you're full of crap, they're going to tune you off. And so you have got to learn how to capture their heart and their mind, and they have to know that you care about them. And if they do, they'll give you everything they got. And the coaches that are doing that, the teachers that are doing that, are having a great deal of success with this generation. As you have been head coach Todd Dagenet from UCF Volleyball. Thanks again for a wide-ranging conversation. It's I, we, we should do this. We should do this again sometime soon. I guess uh, you. Well, I remember when I asked. You know, when I was uh, 
we were setting this up, you're, I was like, what days are you free? You're like, any day that ends in Y. <laughs> like we're all <laughs> like how do you pass the time like what when you, I know you said you know you have certain periods of downtime or or certain periods of uptime but like how do you pass the time you know it's uh you would think that I'm bored I'm not uh just today alone um starting at eight o'clock this morning I was working on scheduling issues um jumped on a conference call then had individual calls with all of our incoming freshmen to get them up to date on what's going on. Um, had a call with Brad, our sport administrator. It, and all of a sudden I look up and it's seven o'clock at night. Jeez. So that's 11 hours right there. Um, so you'd think I'm bored, but there's still a lot of things to be done. There's still a lot of fires to put out. Um, I think that's my way of Instead of thinking about what might not happen, that's my way of thinking about what's going to happen, is well, by planning for it. Well, whenever you want to get your mind off of that, you give us a shout. We'll have you on anytime. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> I always love being out with you guys. Thanks, Todd. Thank you so much for your time, folks. Make sure you follow UCFVBTodd on Twitter. Uh, and always follow us for the latest uh, news that we can find on UCF Volleyball and all UCF Sports at Black and Gold Banner at .com, UCF underscore Banner at on Twitter, Facebook.com slash Black and Gold Banner at. For Eric Lopez and our special guest Todd Dagenet, I'm Jeff Sharon saying thanks for listening. This has been the Black and Gold Banner at Podcast. We'll catch you again next week. Yeah.